When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome, everyone, to Rock M Nation Podcast. Uh, we are back. It is a brand new episode. It is a brand new uh, year. It is the uh, 3rd of January and the year 2022. It's hard to believe as I say that. Uh, Dive Cuts, we are season five, episode 14. I am your host, Sam Snelling. With me forever, uh, never able to get away. Despite all his attempts to, Matthew J. Harris, Matt, how are you? I'm well. Um, I can say that this, I can say definitively, this this podcast has not gone on COVID pause. <laughs> it's not. Uh, oh, I actually saw as much your as our tweet. audience would probably like us to be. Yeah, I I, I saw your uh, your your tweet about like screen capping somebody that was like you know the Mario and. Uh, you know, people that have not caught COVID in December 2021, like running through the, uh, the you know, the Mario phase with all the big, long fireball things. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I've, so I, I always like to add the, the, the caveat that I have yet to catch COVID uh, that I'm, that I know of, uh, you know, it is entirely possible like pre-vaccination and all that kind of stuff. At some point I may have picked it up and just, not shown symptoms. Uh, it's always possible. Um, but to my knowledge, I have not caught COVID and sounds like you're in the same boat. Uh, yeah. Um, we are not in the, uh, Missouri basketball program though. And that seems like the obvious place to start given uh, the news that came down, uh, 
this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, so Missouri had to punt on its <laughs> game, uh, first home game of the SEC conference season against uh, Mississippi State. Uh, coming off back-to-back losses to Illinois and Kentucky that were uh, routes, both of them. Um, it, I think getting a home game against a team who's you know decent but not elite maybe would have helped uh, Missouri. I don't know, to like figure something out. Um, I think judging by some of Conzo Martin's like past issues playing against Ben Allen, maybe it's for the best. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there, the the game has been postponed; has not been canceled. Uh, for anybody you know who follows the women's side, um, terrific win by the way. The the ladies as they took down uh, number one South Carolina. Um, they had to kind of do the same thing and, and postpone their game against Vanderbilt. That has already been rescheduled. Uh, so they are actually going to play that game. There is, a, I think they were going to make every effort for Missouri and Mississippi State to make up that contest. And, uh, and we're hoping that they're able to play on Saturday. Uh, yeah, right now this, the game Wednesday is off the books. Uh, Conzo Martin, I think on his radio show, said tonight that they're hopeful that they're going to get enough guys out of COVID protocol by Thursday that they'll be able to clear, I think, what is it, the eight-man kind of cutoff to go to have Bama on Saturday. So that I think that's sort of the optimistic take right now. Um, the upside of this, if there is any, is that the SEC, in accordance with the changing CDC protocols, has cut that that pause window down from 10 to 5 days. So if you've got guys who, you know, tested positive last Friday or Saturday, they're going to come out of that pretty quickly, you know, by late week. Um, so that's that's the upside here is that the conference adapted its protocol to what's happening on the ground. And you're, it, it stinks to lose a game, but it, it's better than what it would have been a year ago where we probably would have lost a Wednesday game, a Saturday game, and the maybe would have imperiled something early next week. Ideally, you're going to have enough guys to play on Saturday and then roll into the rest of the SEC schedule and just wait for uh, a make-up date for this Mississippi State game. So that's best-case scenario at this point. And, and you know, maybe maybe enough, maybe having 10 days off will help Missouri um, find itself or or find something that can give it a chance here. But... Well, Illinois um, is on pause too, right? So yeah. Missouri played Illinois. Both teams were at full strength. Uh, then Consul Martin tested positive. Illinois has since, uh, and not saying that it is tied to that Illinois game. I think the incubation period uh, might have been a little bit later than that. It was probably around the holidays. Um, but I, you know, my first thought as soon as like, you know, Martin tested positive before the Kentucky game, I was like, well, I, there's there's no way that he's going to be the only one. No. I mean, it was just a matter of when of when those guys popped. We're at the you know, if you're you know, if you're not nothing this and I don't want to in any way sound like I'm saying, "Oh, it was a poor conclusion they were going to get it." They're they were just caught in probably a weird situation where if you were looking at, you know, vaccination timelines, they may have been at the end of waning immunity, they went home. You no, know, you're this thing is so prevalent now and the R factor on its spread rate is so high that 
if you get and the incubation period for viral load is so low that it's much lower than the you know OG COVID or even Delta, that you're gonna get it pretty quickly here. And you know, unfortunately, that's what's happened here. Now it sounds like a lot of the guys were asymptomatic. At least that's what Missouri's reporters have tweeted out. You know, listening to Conzo's show tonight. So if they're asymptomatic, they haven't experienced any issues and Missouri's lining up boosters right now. The best you hope for was this was just a case of unfortunate timing, mm-hmm. and you're going to only lose one game. You're going to be able to make it up. I'm looking at the schedule now. There's gonna, there's not really any great time here. You know, this, There's not like a period where they're off for a midweek. You know, it's all racked and stacked. The question is where they decide to drop it and make it up at this point. You know, what, what makes most sense? to do that um but but we'll see i would rather them just you know do it a couple weeks from now when missouri's already in the state of mississippi at old miss maybe see if you can try and you know wedge it in somewhere there but there is no real ideal time right now it's probably going to be a three games in 10 day type of situation yeah uh, just looking at the schedule right now did they play the bulldogs twice uh yeah, they have a February nineteen road trip. So realistically, to, uh, yeah, if they did the road trip to Ole Miss, they could flip like the home game and the uh, the road right. game, provided that's you know, facilities, yeah, are all uh, are so all good to go. Yeah, so that's kind of what you're going for. Um, yeah, that, that's not a bad idea. Uh, I you know it's it's one of those games where it probably isn't gonna play that big a role. I'm sure like the Bulldogs would, you know, like to get uh, you know, a road win. Um, that would sort of help their fairly flimsy resume, um, you know, if, if they're hoping to sort of make the NCAA tournament. But, you know, it's also one of those games where, you know, Missouri has has now beaten a couple, a couple teams that are like similar to Mississippi State. And you'd hate to uh, that. That's certainly one of those games that like spoils the resume. It's sort of like losing to Vanderbilt a couple of years ago, um, yeah, yeah. you know, where. Yeah, you just you can't lose that game, and if you do, like, there's you have no reason to expect that you're an NCAA tournament team. Yeah, it's a quad three loss right now if you take it to Missouri for most for most schools, at at least this point. So, um, I would rather, like I said, if you flip the dates where Missouri, um, played at Mississippi State in a couple of weeks, it would likely suck because you'd have three straight road games at Ole Miss, slash Mississippi State, then Alabama, but um, conversely, if you were to make that February date a home game, you'd be home against Ole Miss, home against Arkansas, home against Mississippi State, home against Tennessee. So it would come back to you later on. So that's why I would almost want to try and see if you could flip it that way. Because on balance, Missouri comes out okay, and I think it's still and Mississippi State still comes out okay. But we'll see what the SEC does and, and what the office and the schools come up with. But and we'll also see, like, you know, how many more games are postponed. They may have to make decisions on, you know, what games they want to make up and, uh, right. you know, I what mean, are, right. are going to impact league standings, you know, more, uh, you know, like if if Mississippi State, like, you know, for some reason has to miss a game, you know, versus, you know, Alabama or Tennessee, they're a lot more likely to want to make that game up, uh, you know, than they will against somebody like Missouri. It's sort of like when Texas A&M went on pause. Yeah. Last year, they're just like, no, we don't need to make any of those games up. Like, Texas A&M wasn't beating anybody. No, and you already see it happen. those conversations happening out in the West Coast Conference 
Yeah, true. They're already they're already meeting to decide how they can keep, you know, BYU, US, uh, you know, San Francisco, Loy, you know, um, sorry, uh, St. Mary's and Gonzaga all kind of playing their round robin games because, you know, this is a a banner year for that league and they want to do as much as they can if they're going to lose games to keep those to keep those team schedules robust enough that they could all be in contention for a rat large bid. So this he's not there yet. Um, but the A10 and the WCC appear to be having a lot of issues right now with postponements and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see what gets prioritized and uh, what doesn't as we move ahead. But for now, uh, the game is off Wednesday, but it, it seems like there's, there's enough wiggle room here in Missouri if Martin's accurate in his say, in his statements, which I have no reason to think he wouldn't be, might have enough bodies later this week to, you know, host Bama on Saturday. So we'll see. We shall see. So uh, did you watch the game against Kentucky? I did. I uh, have not done a rewatch on it yet. Uh, but uh, yeah, watched all of it in its entirety. And it was a just, bizarre game. Really? Yeah, that was a weird game flow. Just utterly. Uh, and what was it like 52 8 plus 44 and then <laughs> yeah you know then minus 17 for Kentucky just a weird like Missouri was competent for 13 minutes of that game and then just utterly utterly hapless for the other 27 um just hard to read much out of that Kentucky's a team that hasn't looked like they've found a stride yet either um I don't think that's I think it's obvious when you look at, you know, that they've taken, you know, a road loss to Notre Dame. Then they have, you know, they beat up on North Carolina, but North Carolina's not really been uh, as good. I think, I think North Carolina was sort of overstated. They haven't been as good defensively as I think a lot of people might have expected from a, a Tar Heels team. But, you know, North Carolina has lost, you know, games to pretty much anybody ranked inside, you know, the top 25 Kim Palm. So, Kentucky, a team that right now um, has, I think its schedule is, overall schedule is 323rd mm-hmm. in SOS. So, uh, long way of saying Kentucky is still a team figuring it out, but enough raw talent to do what it needed to do, even if there were some some periods where it looked kind of rickety or stilted against a team like Missouri. The, uh, you know, realistically, if you if you strip out the the re- rebounding advantage, you know, the offensive rebounding. I I really thought that Kentucky's ability to generate second shots and get to the free throw line was really all that <laughs> mattered in that game. Yeah, and they were just they were just much much better. Uh, and those two categories and everything else was enough of a wash that it, you know it just didn't matter. Um, yeah, the effective field goal percentage wasn't great, but when your free throw rates like what like point four or something absurd. And you're just killing a team on the glass. You're generating so many additional possessions and so many and so many high value attempts that you know even if you're clanking a bunch of jumpers, you're going to be able to to pull through. And Missouri just, you know, I think we were talking about it—a normal shooting team, like not an exceptional shooting team, <laughs> but you know, with ten one minutes that to go, utter crap. <laughs> right, like with ten minutes to go. That's probably there's probably a ton of game pressure on UK at that point. I mean, they were only up ten, but Missouri was just shooting so poorly that it, it 
you know, that had kind of gifted them the margin. But if you're shooting just a little bit better, you know, that's a young Kentucky team. You know, it's it's still a team that is still, you know, an average to adequate three-point shooting team. I feel like there was one play where I think it was DeGray who hit a th- or took a three and they were down maybe 11. It kicked a run out off. And it, yeah, it kicked and a it run out off. So it went from like, you know, potentially, uh, you know, cutting the lead down game. to, yeah, to seven or eight points to now all of a sudden it's, it's back up it to was like a, 13. And, and I think it was like a three point play. So it was like <laughs> a four, it was like a six or seven point swing on two possessions. And then Missouri just couldn't find its way back the rest of the way. And that, that's kind of how it's been, but it felt like, I felt like over the first 10 minutes of the second half, you know, it wasn't that they were executing all that well at times offensively, but they, but this team had made it enough of a slog to where Kentucky just couldn't open a margin back up. And it's sort of a backhanded um, insult to say like Missouri did enough to gum it up for 10 minutes. Like some teams go on, big runs out of the locker room and really make it a game. And they give themselves plenty of time to take advantage. Missouri just made that a slow motion sort of comeback to get it down to 10. And, you know, again, because they just don't have much, you know, pop offensively, you know, a six point scoring Jag is enough to really just put them down. So it was weird game flow um, where like, you couldn't totally say Missouri was out of it, but then Kentucky hit them with, that last avalanche and it was, and it was done, but um, the overall outcome, not much different than I think what you would have expected to see uh, going into Rupp and, you know, with a, an acting head coach and just kind of the offensive deficiencies that Missouri's got. Yeah. Missouri hasn't had a lot of success uh, playing in Rupp arena. I think year one uh, when, Frank was the coach and they really didn't play well and they should have beaten that Kentucky team. Um, what they didn't, they lost. Yeah. Um, but that, it, was, it was a close game. I want to say it maybe went to overtime. It was 90 83. And that was after they'd lost Nerlens for the year. Nerlens had gone down with his knee injury. Yeah, that's right. Um, and about eight games prior. And, and then what was it last year, a year before where they kind of played him tough, but still not close enough. Uh, but every every other game feels like it's been a blowout. Yeah, and they they usually come early in the non conference slate too, so it's not like you get. Usually, when they've had success, it's been when they've gotten Kentucky kind of later in the slate and at home. But again, I don't think that was a game, regardless of how bad this team was playing. Now, I think in the preseason, you wouldn't have said that trip to Lexington and Rupp was going to be a barometer for this team. I thought. Uh, having old having Mississippi State come in, at least in the preseason, was going to be a really really nice sort of, you know, gauge of where this team was, and you know Mississippi State's as usual played its weak non-con schedule, so it's kind of an open question as to how good they are. And but I really thought you know if you know that was going to be a good measuring stick game for them was to get you know. And they've played Mississippi State well at home over the last couple of years too. So I thought that might have been a game where, if you would, or if you were in a little bit of a lull, maybe it would get you out of it. Um, but again, that assumed that this team would not be anywhere as a close to uh, as close to a bad as it's been. So 
Now it's got to get pushed off, and they get Alabama at coming in uh, to Columbia. So we'll see how how that one uh, looks in a, at the end of the week. Yeah, the Bulldogs, as uh, usual, um, prior to beating Arkansas at home, uh, had just one uh, top 100 win in Kempom, uh, and they beat Richmond in overtime, who is 93rd uh, in overtime on a neutral floor. But yeah, it took a loss by 14 to Louisville, who's 53rd, lost by 5 to Minnesota, who's 68th, and a three-point loss to Colorado State, who is 35th. Who's, so uh, I think right... who's coaching Colorado State these days, Matt? One Mr. Nico Medved. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Nico Medved, he's done a good job there. Done a good job at Furman, done a good job in one year at Drake, good job out there. Um, name a lot of people are probably going to, if they don't already know it, they're going to know it <laughs> over the next two months. A lot of fan bases are going to want to know more about Nico. Um, so we'll, but he, uh, yeah, they picked off uh, Mississippi State like on a neutral court event in Dallas that nobody went to. I watched part of that game. It was just very sad that <laughs> there was nobody. I'm sure the people of the Dallas Metroplex were not uh, gigged up to see the Bulldogs and the Rams I mean, in early December. Like, like you're going to go uh, into Lucas City? In a boring college game, <laughs> like like they're used to watching Luca, man. They they got more fun basketball to watch. They just got more fun things to do than college basketball yeah. in Dallas. So, yeah, can't, can't imagine there's a whole lot of uh, um, you know, state grads hanging out in the Metroplex, you know, looking in. And where is uh, Colorado State? Are they in Fort Collins? Yep, they're in Fort Collins, a very very pretty town. And a, uh, a nice, uh, nice beer scene there. Indeed. So there's, <laughs> so Alabama's coming to town, and I'm interested in that game only because Alabama does not look like the death machine that I think a lot of people assumed they would be. Um, I know you and I were skeptical of that roster. Not that they were going to be bad, but that. There yeah, some we we thought they Nashville. were going to be good, but but, but not how close to what they were last year. Yeah, I just don't think you lose a guy like you know, like Herbert Jones on uh, on defense and a guy like John Petty on offense, and just shrug that off. Uh, as much as you know, you and I both really like Jaden Shackelford. I just don't think you know Javon Quinterly defends at the same level. Um, you know, Even and, a guy and, like and Josh J- Primo, like yeah, like was a, a was a lottery pick and like that's so a crazy. really really good. <laughs> but he's he's doing a really really great job with the the Spurs G League affiliate. I watched him during the Winter Showcase. He's doing a really really good job there. They just don't have room for him on that roster. But put a little more weight and experience on him. He's going to be a good player. Um, but shot thirty eight percent last year. So you took, you know. Those two shooters off the roster, a switch army knife defender, and even like a big like Alex Reese is gone. You know, not you know, just a really, really solid, literally a solid big, you know, not anywhere close to like the athletic ceiling of like Charles Bidiaco, but just fit that lineup really well. Well, yeah, um, and a guy, but a guy is a lot more likely to space the floor. And, you know, like I think that was like Reese's component that he brought. I mean, he didn't shoot an elite percentage. 
but he shot it well enough. Uh, to pull a big out of that. Yeah, to, to actually warrant you defending him. Um, and then, you know, Jordan Bruner, I think, is a, a guy who, uh, you know, had a really nice season. If, if, if he'd have been a little more healthy, I think he probably would have had a little bit more of an impact. But Yeah, uh, they've got, I'm looking over to kind of their minutes distribution right now. And, you know, they've got J.D. Davison, who uh, my man's got a 29.1 uh, assist rate against a 31.7 turnover rate. He is bouncy as hell, but there's some turnover issues. He's shooting 28% from deep. That's your backup point guard, essentially behind Quinterly. Quinterly's shooting has fallen off. He's shooting 27%. Um, so your lead guards, one's turnover prone, and neither of them are really spacing the floor the way that you would want them to. Um, Shackelford's still stroking the three balls at a 39% clip. And doing a good job there. Defensively, you and I think there are times when he can be good defensively, but there are times when, you know, he seems to just kind of muddle through. They need him to be much, much more locked in and engaged. Yeah, he's not um, a committed defender. Like he's he's definitely not like like Petty and Jones had bought into being defensive stalwarts last year. I still think Keon Ellis was a better is... defender than than anyone ever gave him credit for. Oh yeah, thought, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but. You look at Noah Gurley, a guy who was like this big time transfer out of Furman, shooting twenty four percent, you know, doing well around the rim. But you know, again, if the idea was that you're going to have a four man who can kind of be that spacer, that hasn't really happened. Juwan Gary's at twenty eight percent. They're just not shooting the ball well enough to keep those double gaps open for them. And instead of having, you know, a, you know. Alex Reese out on the perimeter. Charles Bediaco is in the paint area. So you just have an extra defender in there. There's more rim protection. It, they just aren't quite the same offensively as they were a year ago. They're only 201st nationally in three-point shooting. So that kind of makes the three and layup model hard. Um, But defensively, they aren't any... I mean, they're 46th in adjusted efficiency, but... They were 30 year ago. They're 216th in two-point defense, which I think is a better barometer of how good you are defensively than your three-point shooting percentage. There's a little bit more variability there. Um, you know, they're not creating the turnovers that they kind of need at times to really get that transition game going. They're not the same as they were a year ago. Um, they're still good. They're still going to be an NCAA tournament team. Still think they could be a top-four team in this conference, but just not not the same group and I, and I, and that's fair you know i think you know i think you and i talked about it how they put teams away last year probably wasn't sustainable this year over year they were going to have to get a little bit more consistent out of their offense and that just hasn't happened quite yet and the defense has regressed a little bit yeah i mean and they're still really good so like yeah. i don't i don't want like this isn't us saying that you know alabama is trash they're they're still like one of the three or four best teams in the league. Um, you know, the SEC has some some decent teams. I think Auburn's a little better than people thought they were going to be. Uh, you know, I was a little skeptical of Auburn's guard play. Uh, you know, but uh, Wendell Green. Uh, <laughs> you you know you know my feelings on Wendell. You know you know my feelings. 
And it, was, I uh, like I still don't love Katie Johnson, but you know, he he does what he does. Like he's just he's, not he's a human bowling ball on the perimeter and does stuff. And they like have he, they have elite rim protection. Walker Kessler, Jabari Smith's awesome. Um, Alan Flanagan's back. I I just like I really thought yeah I really thought that they were going to struggle a little bit uh, with you know Flanagan not kind of being a reliable wing scorer and and you know early on they just they haven't missed him a whole lot so that's good for them. Yeah, but with Bama coming in, like the one thing again. With Missouri, I've, this is going to be a theme for us, I think, as we go through every preview is what's a deficiency and how pronounced is it for their opponent? Like, don't get me wrong. If Bama goes on a scoring jag where they're canning everything, it's it's over. Like, Missouri just, the math will not work in Missouri's favor. More so than usual. So there's there's not an insignificant amount of, like, blowout factor there. If, like, Bama comes in and they're canning them. Their volume is just going to overwhelm Missouri. It won't matter what Missouri does offensively, or even if Missouri is sort of average offensively. When Bama was drilling three balls in spades a year ago, they were overwhelming average offenses. But at the same point in time, Bama's also prone to stretches where they clank everything. And that is a feast or famine-based offense where if they're not scoring off paint, where everything they want to do is create double gaps. They want the shooting to open up and put you in rotation, create double gaps, and then drive it. If they're not shooting it well, those gaps kind of sh- shrink up on them, and Bediaco's in there. The spacing can get a little wonky. Bediaco, which I wouldn't say he's a traditional kind of bruising big. He's seven foot, but he's kind of lean and more bouncy and more of a, not finesse, but he's just, a, he's not, you know, Oscar Schwebe or Tolu Smith or any of those guys. So if you've got an undersized big, you can kind of hang with him a little bit. So that's really Missouri's key here is hope that Bama's just ice cold, the gaps shrink up, and you can kind of clog things and congest it enough that they're not able to really get the rhythm fired up to way that the way they want it. Bama's pace comes off offense. That's kind of a little bit different than normal. Normally we say pace comes off how you guard. That's very much not the case with Bama. They'll have longer defensive possessions, but if you make them work offensively in the half court, you might give yourself a faint chance of making it into something where you can you can tussle it away. But what's the recipe that Missouri used last year to beat them, really? And yeah, you know, they frustrated them on offense. And they were able to sort of, you know, they beat them in transition. Yeah, they they will, you know, flip the field as a as a metaphor a little bit, you know, and and really sort of, you know, take it to Alabama, something that they weren't really used to. They were used to kind of setting the tone, uh, you know, with with tempo through their defense, um, you know, and really falling back and kind of playing that that pack line and and making it difficult. And Missouri was just beating them down the floor. Um, Half court wise, Missouri also I think did a really nice job of kind of using. <laughs> Jeremiah Tillman is a snowplow in those high pick and rolls just to really, really clear out a gap. He would just, his rolls were almost delayed so he could just basically block downfield for Pinson or Smith. And if somebody did, help did get to him, you could dump or lob to him. They don't have that option this year, I think. So it'll be interesting what Missouri does offensively here. Um, this feels like a game where you, Amari Davis has not played well against good teams this year. 
this feels like a game where Bama's, you know, pack line is going to want to give him those mid-range looks. This would be a really good game for Amari to kind of get rolling a little bit and and sort of eat in the mid-range from about 12 to 17 feet. But um, offensively, I don't know what Missouri's really got. They see teams that basically pack line him and, and load up. Like if you if you look at defenses, they pretty much load up to the side and load up in gaps and to the side where the ball screens are going to be setting place, taking place. So feels like they're going to need Amari and maybe some transition opportunities to give themselves a chance in this one. But, I mean, again, I don't want to oversell the possibility there, but that's that's the model, I, I think. I, I don't know if you agree or if, if you've per, got a different sort of projected 12-point loss on, on, on Ken Pomeroy, so... Um, I, I don't really think that there's a whole lot of reason to think that they'll be able to win. I do think that they sort of have enough, and with the way Alabama plays, that you know it could be interesting. Um, but I just you know when it comes to shot making ability down the stretch, uh, yeah, I just think Alabama, you know, especially how good they are at two point percentage. Um, yeah, I think they're shooting almost sixty percent from two point range. At this uh, point, it's Missouri doesn't have guys. Missouri doesn't have a guy you can give the ball to and say go make offense either. No. There's there's not there's not someone who can. You know, we thought for a little bit that Amari Davis might be that, but then you know you've seen what he's done against good defenses, and it's just been tough sledding for him. So even if Missouri's able to kind of do what they did against almost against Kentucky and keep it at that eight to ten margin for ten minutes, is there a player or a you know, suite of plays they can call to really put that game pressure on Bama, and, and until we see that, I'm I'm skeptical that it exists. So I uh, I agree with that. I like you know we'll uh, we'll have an opportunity to kind of talk, you know, provided they're able to play the game, which, like I said earlier, it does appear that they're going to be able to play, uh, and we also don't know who is going to be able to play. Like even if they, uh, you know, they have, you know eight guys clear protocols like what eight guys like is you know or Caleb Brown and, and Jordan Wilmore two of those eight like if that's the case then I feel a lot worse uh than you know if you're running out like your 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 top eight um but yeah I mean everything is sort of up in the air and I guess we'll see on Saturday um Matt did you uh did you peruse the article that I posted on uh, after the new year talking about what we'd like to see from Missouri I, I basketball did. in 2020. I, I did. I did. Um, very, very, very level headed. Um, as always your pieces on, you know, where do you want to see the program go in a calendar year are always sort of, I think um, broad enough, but reasonable enough that, you know, you can look back a year later and say, yeah, this did or did not happen. Um, but I, I agree pretty much with the overall thesis, I think, which is they just need to find a new direction. Um, and I, you know, I would say my general view is I think that's a staged process. Like, I think you can take it in phases. Um, I think in the near term, can they overhaul the offense enough? and the rotation along with it, you know, to make themselves competitive and, you know, through SEC play and, you know, parcel out minutes in a way that 
ensure that they're competitive, but also developing freshmen at the same time. Um, I think that's been my biggest complaint over the last couple of weeks is there are two freshmen in the starting lineup, but it's not, it's more of a cosmetic change when you really dig into the numbers and you dig in to the tape and sort of everything else like that. It's they've, they've you made some changes dig very far into the numbers to, to see that like Anton Brookshire has been starting the games, but not playing very long. Right. And I don't think he's playing in lineups that give him much of a chance to get traction. Right. So it's, it's like, what are we really doing here? What are we building toward? So I, I think there's got to be that full scale commitment to, we are going to, you know, invest real time, real game time in, you know, these future pieces, we are going to try and, you know, really as much as possible. You can't rip out an offense and install a new one. There's just not enough time for that, but we are going to do what we can to reorient the offense in a way towards what we actually do well towards what we, you know, I know people will laugh and scoff that they don't do anything well, but what they're doing still right now, like we talked about after the Utah game, there were some things that they did in the Utah game that I think could have been building blocks for a, sh a schematic shift that would not have required, you know, a ton of, you know, rejiggering of the offense, but then we haven't seen any of them since. So, you know, you look at the piece that Matt Watkins posted today, a lot of that looks familiar offensively for what we've seen from them. So that's the near term. And then I think as, as you mentioned, have a momentum changing spring that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think everyone you know would assume that means another round of roster overhaul and, you know, looking at who are the guys putting that roster together. And then I think just more globally, we talked about it a little last week. Zoe sitting down and really deciding what he wants the identity of this program to be. You know, the scheme can come as a result of that. You know, the, the recruiting model, all that stuff. I think he's got to really sit down and, and commit and really look at what he's done the last four or five years and say what, because it feels like, you know, we've talked about there's not really anything that I can succinctly say what Missouri basketball is. I think that's got to change. And if it doesn't, then I don't know, even if he gets another year, what you're really building towards at that point. I think there's just got to be, you know, everything's got to sort of, you know, you've got to kind of put the fires out as they as they come or check off the or eat the elephant one bite at a time here. They've got to find out something right now in the next couple months to keep this, you know, their jobs, then they've got to go into spring, you know, fashioning a roster that can, you know, be competitive next year. And they've got to think about at the same time, what the overarching vision is moving forward. Cause the one they're using right now is clearly not working. And so I, I think that that's, that's really where my head's at is they've got to take it in stages, but there has to be some fundamental changes at the end of it. And I think like that's As we go through the year. Yeah, that's kind of you know, like what I was essentially trying to say with find a new direction. Um you know, I'm uh, as we've been recording this, you know, podcast for you know a while and and we've spent a good time a good amount of time talking about Consul Martin and sort of my respect for Consul Martin. And I think he has adapted 
sort of his approach in a lot of ways. But at the same time, like, I almost feel like he's at this point probably over adapted. And, and he's, he's gone into areas where he isn't completely comfortable. Uh, he doesn't have anyone on staff who seems to be comfortable. Uh, and, and so like you get this, this product that is really, I mean, poor, uh, for lack of, you know, better phrase there. And I, you know, when you look back, I mean, whatever you want to say about, you know, aesthetic basketball and, you know, like, oh, everybody wants to show up, you know, the style of play is what's keeping people away. And you hear people say stuff like that. And it's like, ah, yeah, I, I don't believe that at all because like, you know, Virginia fans packed the house to watch Tony Bennett teams walk the ball to the floor, uh, you know, and play a, you know, blocker mover offense that looks like it's, you know, straight out of the, you know, yeah, 1950s. Like it's, it's an old school approach. Uh, it's, it's, it works. It's very effective. And, uh, obviously like his, his talent level has dipped in the last couple of years. And, uh, and, and that's, I think impacted, uh, you know, Virginia's ability to sort of make up those margins in so few possessions. Uh, but I'm a, like, I'm a big believer that there are a million different ways that you can, you can play and be successful playing, but you really have to especially as a college coach, because you are the CEO, you're the guy who controls the roster. You add pieces, uh, you recruit them. And you're not, you're not a high school coach. You're not, you're not going through the kids in, in the, the talent pool and being like, well, I guess you're kind of a point guard. And, uh, you know, like at, at, at Webster, like we would have teams that were small and quick one year. And then two years later, you have, you know, two big slow kids who are good around the block and it's like okay so we have to adapt and you don't really have to do that as a college coach you can pick the system that you want and then and then go get the players that fit the system or you can kind of do what i think you and i kind of agree that kermit davis does he just goes out and tries to get the best players he can and then finds a way to make it work and it, it you know when you're a middling like middle class program like like Missouri is and and Ole Miss is like it it becomes more difficult. So I think stylistically, you know, if if Martin just wanted to just be defense and rebounding guy, like if you just want to commit to that and and be a slog on offense, if you're top thirty in Ken Palm, like I don't think anybody's really complaining. I'm sure that they could say, okay, yeah, we want to see you win more. But you're winning, like, and I think like that's for me what it boils down to is is Martin has changed and adapted himself to the point where he's no longer recognizable for the guy that that uh, that gained accolades as a, as you know a leader at uh, Missouri State and and rebuilding Tennessee and uh, you know obviously like you know Cal's a different kind of job you know but. The things that worked early on at Missouri aren't like none of that is working. And and I think like a lot of that has just been Martin compromising himself into a, a, a place where like he's he's doing things for the sake of doing them and not necessarily like defining uh, his program. Like the a couple of weeks ago, there's a piece on Purdue and how 
you know, their offense sort of functions. And, you know, Matt Painter's got 120 something plays in his book. And he sort of says, every year we adapt to the personnel we have. And you might think, well, that sounds a lot like what Conzo is doing, but I can tell you what a Purdue wing looks like. I can tell you what a Purdue four looks like. I can tell you what a Purdue five looks like. If the EYBL is in Indianapolis, I can go to a court, see where Matt Painter is sitting. And I can tell you and feel pretty confident without looking at like a kid's recruiting profile, who he's watching on the floor. And yeah, he changes and he adapts his system every year, his personnel, but that's because Purdue has a pretty clear checklist of what it wants in its players. And, you know, rosters will change every year because guys will graduate, some will transfer, some guys will go pro. But Matt has recruited guys that have skill sets that he wants. And then he'll just pick the different pieces of that playbook to fit with them. I'm not sure that happens at Missouri. I think Conzo has want. We saw what he wanted, I think, here, which is to be a switch-everything team. We've talked about a switch-everything defense. He wanted basically blurred lines between two and four on the position chart. And, you know, wanted to, I think, keep... You know, wanted multiple ball handlers, wanted to kind of keep the offense in place that he had a year ago, except the offense he had a year ago had defined ball handlers. It had a defined five. And those two things were absolutely essential because if you're going to have, you know, wings and combo guards and a stretch four that can do different things, the thing that had to power all that was the threat of a middle ball screen. And Missouri doesn't have that. And so it feels like I'm looking at a roster that's got all the things that would exist, but not the two most important things. And to me, that's sort of the issue here is this was a, an, an intentional process. Like they could have, you know, when they had guys transfer out, maybe they could have gone back to Mark Smith and said, you know, hey, we, we want you to stick around and do a, you know, a fifth year here. We need a floor spacer and a really good on-ball defender then maybe you would have had a jump shooter that could have opened up some more gaps for your point guards who weren't really point guards. Maybe you, so maybe you could have gone into the portal and really hunted for a true, you know, pass first point guard that could really create out of ball screens, but they didn't go get that. And so I think that that's always been my issue is much less scheme because I think scheme can change and, you know, coaches can adapt scheme. However, but I look at this roster and no matter what scheme you're playing, it's missing some components. And, you know, the thing you need now more in college basketball than anything is, you know, we talk about it's a guard-driven game. You need a true point guard, and if anything, the skill you need most in basketball now is shooting, and Missouri doesn't have it. And as I said earlier, it doesn't have a five that's really a good roller threat to play out of those middle ball screens. So like they're missing two or three of the most fundamental components they would need. And that was after a considered plan. So uh, we've talked about it a lot. We're going to, I'm going to stop talking about it now, (laughs) but that's really, I think they've got to sit down and they've got to really decide what those pieces are, what they're looking for there. And then like you're saying, the, any approach they take after that, that's fine. But I think they've got to have a clear sense of, now, the type of player they want, type of assets they want, and then build off of that. So 
we'll see. But, you know, at, at this point, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll be frank. I've moved on to the point where I've started watching other coaches and other systems. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, Just, we're making jokes about Medved. I think he's high up on both of our lists. Um, yeah. Should the decision be made to, to move on from, from Martin? I think like that, you know, there are, there are a few clear guys that you are going to have to check in with. And he's one of them. Like I, like, I don't think you're unrealistic in saying like we, uh, you know, are probably preparing for some kind of coaching change, you know, but it doesn't necessarily stop Martin and his staff from like figuring something else out. And, and like, that's the thing that to me that, which has been sort of the most frustrating about this is I was willing to kind of give this, this whole roster changeover a shot, but they went, they went like long on this, you know, idea that, you know, and he talked about it as like his, his videos, idea that like you're recruiting like the mid major plus guy, um, you know, and, and while that's a, that's a great clip, uh, you know, talking it's about great. like the kind of attitude that you want within your program, like at some point, like that's not enough. And it's Cause everybody works hard. Right. And like, that's the, like when you get to the, the high major level, like everybody's working like really hard and the, the most programs are. Yeah. Not everybody. Like there's sure. some... <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and realistically, like, you know, when, you know, like a guy is immensely talented, but doesn't necessarily work hard. I think like there are plenty of guys who've sort of cycled through not just Missouri over the years, but other programs. I think, uh yeah like you've went and watched like what was the uh antavion column what was his yeah. name it was a guy yeah. who just had everything you could want in a basketball player the way he moved the size the skill but th there was no desire to play the game you could tell because he just wasn't very good like he didn't play hard he like and all these these sort of elements that that come through with hard work like they weren't there um but at the same time, like you can work and work and work and work and work. But if your talent level is, is medium, then you have a cap on how good you can be. And, and I, I think Missouri has a lot of guys in the roster right now that are just sort of built into that same mold, you know, whereas, you know, Martin was a really pretty talented guy and, and like, there's a reason he's being recruited to the big 10, you know, and, and not like university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, like, like he was being offered by Big Ten schools because he was a Big Ten level player, and he also, you know, worked his 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 tail off to become a you know a, a middling uh, NBA player despite having, you know, like some, one knee. Yeah, some, some pretty you know terrible uh, issues with his knees. So like, and I almost wonder like if that's like part of the the blind spot is. He thinks, oh, well, like I work as hard as, as this kid is working. That means that this kid can can get to where I was. And it's like, well, I'm so you're selling yourself short here, dude. Like you are really talented. And I just think that there's just not enough talent. Like <laughs> if if Kobe Brown is your fourth option, uh, and Kobe Brown's been a good player, but if he's your first option, 
like that's that's a problem like i'll i'll phrase it this way i'll give this example over the weekend i watched seton hall villanova villanova seton hall's down to eight dudes through covid protocols they're starting trey jackson trey jackson scores two points in the game but what trey does for his 20 or 25 or 30 minutes he's out there is guards his ass off guards his absolute ass off doesn't always get a rebound, but he's fighting for position. He's occupying someone else so his buddy or his teammate can get a rebound. Running the floor hard. Getting on the floor. All the things that you would want a Conzo Martin player to do. That, you know, Kevin Willard is getting out of him. You know, he's not at Missouri. You know, but, you know, early on, though, if you had said that that's going to be Trey Jackson. You'd watch him his first year at Missouri. You'd have said, there's no way that's going to happen. Because there are times, you know, when there'd be mistakes and he'd be pulled. There'd be, you know, you know, maybe some issues on the floor. He'd be pulled. Whereas Kobe Brown might make a similar mistake and not be pulled. And, you know, again, we didn't see practice. We didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. But you would wonder, what's giving one guy some rope and the other guy not getting some rope? You know, there are, you know, there was a piece that was written in mid-December where Torrance Watson was saying, you know, at Missouri, I always felt like there was a lot of pressure because I had to come off the bench, get it right. I had to make something happen. I had to get something going so I could keep playing. And, you know, I, I don't think it's out of line to say that affected, you know, his mentality on offense. You know, he would say, you know, my job on offense was to come down and hold a corner. I didn't feel necessarily comfortable or confident playing off the dribble sometimes. But, you know, you'll watch Javon Pickett and you'll see, you know, what Pickett's doing. And there's that confidence there because Martin's given it to him. And so you wonder at times whether, and I don't think, you know, Martin's, you know, sitting there saying, I want to, you know, make this guy feel like crap or make this guy feel special. But whether subconsciously what you're talking about plays out, whether his preferences sort of betray themselves at times and, you know, how guys are used and opportunities they receive. And that trickles down, you know. That's what players, you know, need confidence. You know, they need to feel like there's trust there. And if that's not there, those guys will go elsewhere. But Torrance is playing really well at Elon. Trey Jackson's playing really well, you know, in his role as kind of a sixth guy for Seton Hall. You know, Mark Smith went for 25 at Oklahoma over the weekend. You know, we joke about Xavier Pinson, but he's, you know, fit in to a degree at LSU. <laughs> I LSU's been way better than I thought they were going to be, and a lot of that is because they they've been good defensively. Now, admittedly, I have not watched them uh, more than a few minutes here and there, and even when I did, like you know, X wasn't really playing a whole lot. Um, you know, so I don't I don't know if he's finally found whatever commitment he needed defensively, but for whatever reason, he he wasn't defending here. Right, but I mean, again, that's that's the thing you talk about is these guys have found something that they were lacking, you know, while they were here. And, you know, if you believe that Martin's a mentality coach, and if you believe that he's going to get guys to buy in, do what they need to do, that raises some questions to me as to what happens here and, you know, as to the evaluation stuff. And I'm not saying, again, Zoe's out here playing mind games or trying to make guys feel like crap, but there's a managing people and sort of personalities thing that I've always wondered about and, and how that plays out. So, 
we'll see moving forward, but um, it, it's just, it's been hard in that sort of sense to, it, to see kind of what's transpired as guys have moved on and, and what they're doing in new roles and in new places. Well, uh, we're up against it here. Um, and uh, we've already kind of hit all the, the topics I've at least wanted to talk about. Um, you know, what we all want to see from Missouri basketball in 2022 is just be better, like more better, Matt. <laughs> more good. Yeah, like, and I, 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 I don't think it would take like a complete like 180 turnaround kind of thing for me to be on board with bringing Kanza Martin back. But the biggest thing for me out of that whole theme was they have to find a new direction, something else than what they've been doing the last few years because it has not been working. Yeah, and I think the last point I'll make is if you read, you know, stuff from the people who are around the program or every day more so than we are, the constant refrain is, you know, it seems to be that there's not an aching desire to make a change right now. Setting aside the $6 million cost of said change, you know, Desiree Reed Francois knows Zoe from her time at Tennessee. I think, you know, it's been reported that she admires Zoe, that they're they're on good terms. I just don't think that there's a real appetite, you know, even aside from the finances, to to go make a change here. But, you know, to your point, finding a new direction has to happen. It has to. And, you know, if Zoe's going to talk, you know, if Zoe's talking about, you know, we're getting there, we're on the right track. At some point, that's got to manifest itself on the floor. And if it doesn't, and, you know, then I think you put your boss in a position where it's like, what else can you do? You know, and I really think that's where we are here. Zoe's got to show over the next six to eight weeks that that this, you know, progress that he's, that's happening behind closed doors is going to show up when the lights go on or he's going to cha- make enough changes to course correct. If neither of those things happen, I don't know if it'll really matter if, if the, if there's, you know, administrative appetite or, you know, financial, you know, qualms about making a move. It may just be that that's finding a new direction has got to be what's got to, got to be the course that happens and that they follow. So we'll see. Yeah. The, the, the new direction has to happen at some level. And I believe it, like it is either Council Martin needs to find a new direction. The administration needs to find a new coach to find the right direction. Uh, but even through like, and, and this will kind of be the last thing I'll say, even if like whichever decision is made there, if it's keep the coach, move on. The commitment has to come down. And I think this will kind of piggyback into the piece that you're going to run that Missouri wants to be more competitive in basketball financially. Uh, and that, that has to come from the administration. Like that has to uh, expand over, you know, what we've seen for the last two plus decades. Um, 
you know, for, for Missouri fans, you and I included in that, what we would like to see is, is a competitive basketball program. Uh, I'm not asking for national championships. I, I want competitiveness. And I think that there are coaches out there that are not Consul Martin that can bring the program with a menial investment up to that level that we all want it to be at. Um, if they're consistent enough, maybe you invest more and more and more and see where it goes. But, uh, you know, and that's me not even saying that, you know, Consul Martin can't be that guy. I, you know, it's, he's just got to have like a spring of soul searching and make some, some really kind of deep seated changes to his approach and, and the way sort of he views success at the, at this level. We good? An uplifting pot as usual. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, everybody check out Matt's piece. They'll be publishing later this week about the finances, uh, as Matt is, you know, one to be, um, it can be a little long winded in places. Um, but the, the information there is, is second to none. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to get to publish this piece. I think we actually teased it over the summer. So, <laughs> but now, now it is, I, what we were kind of joking before we went on air. Uh, I actually think it's better that we didn't, uh, publish this during the summer because I think it's a lot more appropriate right now because it gives us sort of a foundation uh, of kind of where we were like you know five years ago like when I was talking about what kind of jobs the Missouri job was uh, and this is sort of like a, uh, a, a reintroduction to, to that uh, so make sure uh, everybody to subscribe to this podcast if you're not already um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, those all go to Levi. Uh, leave me out of it, please. Uh, you can follow Matt on Twitter if you want. Um, Matt J. Harris 85. I am at Sam T. Snelling. I'm really not tweeting much these days, Matt. Staying off the tweets. Um, uh, as, as mine. Yeah. It's Mario related. <laughs> now, any chance to fire off a good Mario tweet. Uh, but you and I will be back. One of these days, we're going to get the uh, uh, at. I can't remember. Is it Data Mizzou? Matt. I think so. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get so. the other Matt. We're gonna, it's going to be two Matts and a Sam. Uh, and we'll, we'll have him on the podcast. You'll, you'll have a, a, a new voice to hear you know, bad things about Missouri basketball from. Uh, so until then, uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, have a great weekend. And hopefully Missouri can, can make things interesting against Alabama. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for tuning in.